Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. Thanks, worship team, for leading us. Perfect uh, time in, the, in, in worship this morning. The song choice was perfect for where we're headed uh, this morning in the Word, and so I'm excited about that. I've been this, this sermon series that we begin today uh, has been something that's been brewing for a long time, and, and so it's exciting to get to start this. Um, and uh, throughout the month of January, we're going to be looking at our ministry values as a church and where God's been taking us as, as we've been developing that. You've heard some of these things, but we're going to really put some feet and some meat to this and uh, develop it quite a bit more over these next couple of weeks. We're calling this series Tracks. Think train tracks. Train tracks keep a train moving in one direction in the right direction to get it to the destination of where it needs to go, helping it not veer off and head off in different directions. We need tracks as a church that help us get from here to where we see God taking us and where he's leading us as a church body. That's why the term tracks. And so as we look at it, there's a couple of things that we've been sharing with you, but I'm going to put them on the screen again, having to do with our our mission and our vision. When it comes to River of Life and where God's taken us, when we, when we use some terms like mission, vision, uh, core values, some of you might immediately just go, oh. but let me tell you, there's heart, there's life behind it. And I want you to pay attention to a couple of these things. When we talk about mission in a church, mission could be universal to any Bible-believing, Christ-following church. The way we are wording it, the language that we're using at River of Life, is that River of Life's mission is to join God in His mission of reconciling God and man. It's His work. It's His mission. We're simply joining Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks all about that reconciling work. And so we're just joining Him as a part of that and uh, being men and women who, who get on board with that. The vision, though, is more unique. The vision is specific to us at River of Life and the place that we live and the heart that he's planted in us. As we've talked with you, as we've prayed, as there's been time spent fasting, as we've consulted the word, one way to describe what God is leading us towards as a church is in our vision. It's exciting, but it's to give Christ living water to the western slope. The entire western slope. That the vision that God is giving us is in vain with that, that we would be a part of it. So one way you could say this, if somebody says, hey, what's River of Life all about? Well, you could say this response. We're joining God in his mission of reconciling God and man as we bring living water to the western slope. We're not saying we're not into missions by saying the western slope. You'll hear more of this as we keep going. But, but it's, it's all about this idea of the dead coming to life as they drink of Christ's living water. The spiritually dead. The places where Satan has brought death to, to our valley, to our world. That they come to life in that. And we're going to keep doing this. Listen to how big this goal is. Until Every single person on the western slope has access to the gospel. Now, there's been a lot of church planting effort and focus put on the front range, but we believe God is calling us to look at our backyard right here and bringing living water to this area. Because if we don't do it, God is going to be forced to raise up somebody else who will do it and be obedient to his word in that area. 
and it's exciting and I can't wait to see what's going to happen and where God will take us. But let me tell you something that I've grown keenly aware of. This is way bigger than us. And it's something that we can't handle. Only God can do it. And so as we go into 19, no matter how many plans we might have, which one of those things is going to be church planting? Seeing God work in our churches and maybe another church here in the valley, somewhere in the valley, we're already actively working towards that and seeing what God would do in reaching people who are not church, not in relationship with him, reach through that. In working towards outreach and right here in our backyard, in developing a discipleship, a common discipleship framework of how we work in discipleship, of, of helping new believers become devout followers of him, intimate followers of Christ. As we do that, guys, these things are too big for us. But prayer is the key. And in 2019, our spiritual theme is going to be prayer, that we will talk about prayer and give op- not just talk about it, but give opportunity for prayer over and over and over again. And as we do, I believe that God will descend in power as we look to him, as we rely upon him for what he is going to do and wants to do. And so we're going to be working towards making ourselves available to being a praying church so that we don't risk being a church that's trying to do it on our own strength and power, making a name for ourselves because it has nothing to do with us. This is about the fame of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ because people matter to him. And so that's where we're headed. Let's stop and let's pray before we even dive into any of this. Can we do that? So what we'll do is I'm going to guide us through a couple things. If you just be silent and pray before the Lord in your mind, in your space where you're seated and pray a few things as I guide us through a few, few steps here. Just to get your mind focused on Jesus' work and where he's active, would you just praise him for some things you see God doing around you? Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a a breakthrough somewhere in life, but some areas where you see God working. Would you praise him for that? If you have to dig hard for it, ask him for something to show you something where he's working. Take a minute and just ask the Lord to purify your heart. His word says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Forgive us of our sins and and purify us from all unrighteousness. Would you seek him for forgiveness where he washes us white as snow? God's grace is immense and it's able to, to, to forgive you. And finally, uh, words like church vision and direction are all a bunch of nice talk. If a church thinks, oh, that's good for the leaders, that's good for everybody, this church to be about. But really, remember this, the church is you and I. You are the church. And before we even hear some of these values and directions that we're headed, would you ask for God's heart to be your heart? 
Seek God's heart. That you would simply bleed his heart here. Father, I pray that you would implant your values, your heart, what matters to you into us as a church body in an ever-increasing manner. God, you've been so merciful to us. You've done so much work within us, but continue to do it. Keep working it out to completion in us. Keep using River of Life, Lord. We want to be your church that's honoring you and walking in step with you day by day as we respond to your spirit. Thank you for these people, Lord, that make up River of Life. Lord, it's an honor to be a shepherd here, to be a part of their lives. I pray that you would just fill them with with eyes that see your glory and eyes that see you, Jesus, and a continual heart of turning towards you. And we pray this in Jesus' name as we dig into your word. Amen. Well, if our destination, if our end goal is to get towards where every person in the Western Slope has access to the gospel, if we're bringing Christ living water in that way, there's been a verse that has been on my mind numerous times in my life. And I think of it for River of Life. And it's Isaiah 43, verse 19, where the prophet Isaiah said, Behold, I'm doing a new thing, speaking of God. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, that God would bring living water that brings the dead back to life. And that would be my prayer for us at River of Life, is that the gospel, as it's brought out to people, as people have access to the gospel, as it's applied to their lives, that lives would be restored, that, that lives would be changed. And the values that we have been working on over the last number of uh, months, about the last year, are values that are here, but we want to fan the flame of. They're things that we want to see God do more of. And so they will act as things that serve as a guide to help us know what we will be about as a church and what we won't be about as a church to help us in that approach of getting there. We've always talked here at River of Life about some ways, the hows of what we do with ministry. Scripture and, and worship and relationships and kingdom and prayer. And those will still be a part of how we do ministry. But what kind of ministry are we going to be about? We have four words that we've shared with you, but we want to work through over this next month. We're going to take one each Sunday. And today we're going to look at the word restore. But the values are this, restore, belong, abide, and multiply. What kind of ministries will we be about? Restorative ministries, belonging ministries, being a church learning to abide and being a church that multiplies and continues to expand in God's heart. These are all values that come out of the gospel. They're biblical. There are special emphases, though, for our church when we think of the context that we live in and the unique place that God has planted us here in the Grand Valley. And so we today are going to look at this issue of restore. And we're going to ask the question, what does restore mean? Biblically, what does restore mean when we, when we use that word? What are we talking about? Why is restoration important for us as a church body and as individual believers? Why does this matter for me? 
And so let's start with looking at what restore means by going to the gospel of Luke. We're going to go to uh, 711 today, Luke 711. And uh, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke 711. This story that we're going to look at today in the life of Christ is only found in the gospel of Luke. You may remember this story or it may be brand new to you. A few of you are going to go, I've read this, but I don't remember this story. And so somewhere along the way, you may have encountered it, but it, it's a great story that helps set up a context where we see Jesus restoring uh, people to life. We could pick numerous passage, passages throughout scripture, but this one gives us such a great framework, just a, a basic, simple foundation of understanding restoration and what it looks like as a church uh, to be a church that's engaged in restorative ministries and seeking God personally for his restoration in our lives. Now, I'm indebted to a man named Dave Smith in looking at the context of this and understanding the cultural setting of what's going on because it's key to understanding and interpreting this passage. It's key to knowing what's going on. And so as we come to Luke chapter 7, this is early in Jesus' ministry. In fact, John the Baptist is still around. We know because he shows up just in the section following this that we're going to be looking at. And in this, Jesus has already performed a few miracles. And so people are starting to pay attention to Jesus. They're seeing him. They're noticing what he's doing. They're noticing something is unique and special about him. And some are beginning to follow him. And so Jesus has headed out of the city of Capernaum. And now with his 12 disciples, as well as a large crowd, they're beginning to head towards a village called Nain. A village only named in this story, in in Luke's gospel. And he's moving with this large group. So Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. See, if we're... Speeding through this, we won't catch what was going on in this scenario, the desperation of what was going on in this scenario. So Jesus, his 12 disciples, this large crowd are moving along. Another crowd is coming out of the city gates, and these two crowds converge. They come together. There's going to be an interaction, a moment where something happens. And Jesus enters the scene, and he changes everything in it. But what they saw What Jesus and his disciples and those following him saw would have stopped them dead in their tracks. Because something wasn't right. When you see a funeral procession, you know something is not right because death is not good. It's not right in this world when that's going on. But that's not all. At the lead of this funeral procession is one woman. Following behind her is the young man on a stretcher being taken out to be buried, which was typical. And behind him was a crowd, people mourning the loss of this young man. But that wasn't simply just what was not right. What we don't see in this story is what Jesus would have immediately been able to understand was going on. Because the woman was alone. Typically, a family would have gone together at the front of a funeral procession. A wife, her husband children that were along with them, they would have gone together. And in this moment, Jesus can immediately assess what's going on. This woman is a widow. There's no one with her. And what's the big deal about that? Couldn't she just move forward in life? Won't there be people to take care of her? 
Well, two things stand out to what's going on in this scenario. One of them is this, is that her family line would now end with her. And in a Jewish culture where family meant everything, where you were known by your, your tribe and your family and your clan, it was a huge loss. And that's one thing. But here's the big thing, you guys. Especially for a widow in Jewish culture. She was dependent, a woman was dependent almost solely on her husband and any son she might have for her sustenance, for her, her survival. And she's alone. Can imagine the desperation she's now facing as she looks at the rest of her life. What is she going to do? Because there's no one, unless the goodwill of that village took care of her, no one is going to take care of her. Something's wrong. Imagine if you were her. What would you think of life at this moment? It's ended in some ways for her. What would you think of God in that moment? What would fix this? God, what could you possibly do now? Her life in some ways, probably in her eyes, has ended. And life is like that a lot of times for us. There's devastation, there's problems, things are ripped apart, they're not whole, they're not the way they're supposed to be. And we might look around and ask the questions like a lot of people around us ask, and like a lot of Christians ask too, what could possibly fix this? What hope is there in a situation like this? How will God move? Only if he restores, only if he puts it back together again, would it be fixed. There's a man in our church who has taken a couple or had taken a couple of classes on, uh, on, on sorry, graphic editing and fixing up photos and, and putting together things, restoring photos back to life. And he had taken those classes, so he thought, I'm in need of some work, some extra work. I'll get online and I'll look for a job. And he looked for a job that said, the skills you need are photo editing, restoration, and retouching. So he applied. He sent an application, and they wanted to see what his work could do. And they sent this back to him, and they said, see how the picture on the left has been restored. It's been retouched. Life has been brought back into it. Things that are missing are are put back in there, and it's been restored. Do that now with the picture on the right. (laughs) Most of us would look at that and go, I have no idea. Let's take a new picture. We wouldn't know what to do. He looked at it and went, wow, this is above and beyond me. Something needs to happen for this to to be restored. He didn't even apply for the job because he thought this was too much. You know, that's really actually what it's like because we can't restore people. We can't do the work that God can do. But God is in the business of restoration. I have a friend who I met a number of years back. And when I was coming to a church that we served a ways back, On the way, uh, candidating, on the way there on a Sunday morning, somebody was driving us to church and they were talking to us about some people we'd meet, including the person who was going to teach the Sunday school class that we were going to go to that day. And as she was explaining to me, this person, he turned out, he ended up becoming one of my good friends and remains a good friend. In fact, he was here in March worshiping with us as they came and visited us. But I was skeptical. Because the story about him started this way. A couple of years ago, he was in, in uh, a, a prison down in Minneapolis and just a couple of years ago. And I heard that and I was like, seriously, he was in prison on drug charges just a couple of years ago and he's teaching Sunday school? And the skeptical side of me went, really, do they know him? I mean, do they, has he been tested? Has he been proved? 
has, has God really done that much restoration in his life? Here's the story of his life. He grew up in a, started in a two-parent home. Somewhere in his childhood, his parents divorced. At that point, he didn't have much. He was kind of struggling to get through life and get along. His mom was doing her best to try to raise him well. His mom really was the one uh, that, that kind of held him on a decent track for the beginning part of his life. He told me a story one time about how he stole a candy bar from a store. And like a good mom, she walked him back into the store and made him pay for that. And then took the candy bar away from him and couldn't even eat it. So she did a good job. But as he hit his teen years and he went through some rough patches of trying to find his identity, he got in with a crowd that introduced him to partying. Then that crowd turned him into, uh, introduced him to some drug use. And slowly that drug use just went deeper and deeper into harder stuff. It wasn't long before he was hooked on that and he was using every day and he was addicted and he couldn't get off of it on his own. His life was spiraling down. He talks about an accident, about fights, uh, about these things that were just destroying his life. It was falling apart. Literally, death was coming into his life. Drug use led to drug dealing. And eventually, the feds came pounding on his door. They hauled him off. He was convicted and sent to a a high-security prison and sentenced to a long-term sentence. One day, while he's sitting in prison... Uh, he heard about chapel and no one there wanted to go to chapel, he said, because it was seen as weak. But chapel offered one thing. And at the time, I think you know this, donuts a lot of times come with chapel. And he went to chapel because there were donuts. And he would go back to chapel. And each week he heard about this man named Jesus that he had heard about but really didn't know anything life-giving from. And week after week, he heard this. And one day, the gospel made sense to him. God called his name. And he went forward. He gave his life to Christ. And he began a restoration that had to do with getting on his knee before Jesus. While he was in prison, he began to get discipled. And he got accepted into this program by prison fellowship. And was discipled for a year in an intense living environment. That's part of the prison system where he, his life literally was restored and he he found freedom from some of the addictions and some of the things going on in his life and god began to do a work in him teach him the word and he began to abide in christ and he found fellowship in there while he was there god called him to ministry and can i ask you a question can god call somebody to ministry while in prison and god called him to ministry and he came out and he started the alliance's ministerial study program and he went through that and today my friend is a licensed alliance pastor He's a jail chaplain where where he lives, and he serves God faithfully in that context. And the cool thing about his story is God has used him, and he doesn't do that for a living. He's a tent maker, so he has a full-time job as an electrician, owns an electrician company. He often hires guys that he meets in, in jail to come out, and they actually work for him or other people that are in need, and he trains them. He's helped them uh, get moving forward in life. And sometimes that works great. Sometimes he gets burned by it. He's, got, he's married. He has four kids now. God has blessed his life. It's been restored as he sought God, and God did the work in him. He's turned into one of my, my good friends, and I praise God for the, the freedom and the healing and the change that's come in his life. I tell you that story so it makes sense when we say, what is restoration? Restoration is simply this, to be made whole through Christ. 
to be made whole again through Christ. To see Christ's work where God is restoring, where he's bringing freedom, where he's bringing life into situations where death has captured it. Where Satan is pulling somebody down in bondage. Sometimes believers need some restoration. We continually need it. Sometimes, and a lot of times, also it's unbelievers caught in bondage of different ways. And so, as a church body, we can engage ministry and engage people in freedom and restorative and change kind of ministry. And it happens here. It happens in journey groups where people whose marriages are just coming apart, they're unraveling, and they join a journey group. And over time, God begins to mend that. But God wants to do more of that. God wants more restorative ministry. As we think about restore, why is it a big deal? Well, think of where we live. We love where we live, right? This is a great place to live. But we also know the warts of where we live, the issues that are right there. And we don't just ignore them and turn a blind eye to them. God put us here on purpose to see those and to bring the gospel to those things. Friday night, I was watching the news. I heard another news story about suicides and the issue of suicide and the depression and some of the the mental health issues that go along with that. Do you realize the most recent stats we have in 2017, 45 people uh, took their lives in Mesa County. Over 340 attempts. Guys, not one of those is acceptable. We need to work and see the gospel applied to people's lives so that those numbers change. Family breakdown. We are aware of the dysfunction of families. The divorce rate that's pretty high here. Some have called uh, Mesa County the divorce capital of Colorado. Only one other county has as quite as high of a, of a divorce rate as we have. But it's there. I mean, even behind perfectly manicured lawns and nice doors, family dysfunction. Even the ones that are together, right? There's dysfunction. There's a need for the gospel to come restore that. The cyclical issues that we know of our community, some of the generational poverty that has a grip on our community, some of the education issues here. The, the oil's been both good and bad for us, right? And the, the ups and downs that that's brought. What if the gospel was brought into some of those, those cyclical issues? The addictions that hold our community. We've made some strides in, in some of the, the drug stats that we look at. We've made some strides there, but we know that alcohol is still a very big issue in our community. We know that, that sexual and, and pornography sins and issues with that still hold our community with a stronghold. We see in relationships the need for, for peace to be brought into places as crime and violent crime rises. It's just a reality of where we live. And some of those things emerge with the need for more foster care. And you see the numbers growing in that. And it's just where we are. But God's put us here with a message that changes lives. That brings hope to places like we're dealing with. Some have described our community as one that's living with a community trauma where there's the effects of these things that, that bring kind of a hold on our community and the need to be freed from that and healed from that. See, we're not talking about a social gospel that just meets the physical need. We're talking about a holistic gospel where the gospel applied to a life changes things. It even changes societies. But there's a layer behind all of those things. That's the manifesting, sim- the thing we see. But there's a layer behind that. There are reasons for those things that are much deeper than just listing a bunch of statistics and issues. When we see broken systems and broken societies and broken souls, it all goes back to this 
seed of sin that's planted and in each human being that was introduced by Adam and Eve when they messed up. And when they messed up, people and personalities and desires and relationships and pregnancies and births and children and families and communities and cities and even nature all got messed up and broken. You see, God created a perfect world. We know this. He created Adam and Eve and he put them in a perfect garden in a perfect place And everything was just right until everything wasn't just right because Adam and Eve had a choice. And they chose this option not of loving God, but instead they made a choice of the one thing that was prohibited from them. They didn't just mess up one thing when that happened. It messed up everything in our world. It touched everywhere. And that sin that started seemingly isolated bled out into every place. And soon God's perfect world was sin-stained and it affects everything we see today. So move somewhere else and you're going to get a different batch and different set of stuff. But God's restorative ministry is needed. Living with some of those things holding us with a death grip around our throat is no way to live. It's no way to live if you're a follower of Jesus, just barely bobbing along and not really having seen God's restorative ministry. Guys, there are people begging for answers to questions that they're asking about how does change come? Where does life come from? What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of that? Restorative ministry speaks into that. John 10.10, you might know this verse. Jesus said to us, the thief comes, Satan comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He degrades everything. He pulls everything down. But Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came to give back, to restore life, to bring life to people. Don't you want that for yourself and for other people around you? Don't you want that for your neighbors? It's a cry, I think, within so many of our hearts. This desire, this need is woven all throughout Scripture. The psalmist said it, how long, O Lord, until you restore me, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey. I have suffered much, O Lord, restore my life again as you promised. Jeremiah, the prophet said, turn me again to you and restore me for you alone are the Lord, my God. Lamentations, restore us, O Lord, and bring us back to you again. Restoration is the cry of our hearts and so many people around us, their hearts. Sometimes we need restoration because of dumb things we've done, right? We make choices, we make decisions, we willfully sin against God. Sometimes we need restoration because we live in a world that is still feeling the effects of sin. And in a sense, we're victims of it, living in that world, but we still need restoration. And when, as this passage helps us see, When Jesus comes into the situation, things change. Because when he comes in, he restores life. And literally in this story, the hurt, the crushed, the trapped, the isolated, he restores their life. So let's go back over to Luke chapter 7. Let's dig in again and look at what happens in the story. Things are not right. We can see what's not right. Just like Jesus could see what was not right in this situation. Verse 13. And when the Lord saw saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. 
And the dead man sat up and he began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You know, for Jesus to say, don't cry in this scenario. Imagine if you were going through a devastating thing and I walked up to you and said, don't cry. It'd sound hollow. It'd sound trite, right? But only Jesus could say that because in the instant of saying it, he's also acting. He's doing something. And he raises this boy who was dead back to life. He restores him to what, what God wanted for him. And when he did that, the people began to see some of what God was beginning to want them to see. They missed some of it, but they were beginning to see the glory of Jesus. They were beginning to understand it. And this boy's life literally was restored. And your life can be restored too. In this passage, there's two deep theological convictions when it comes to restore that we would discover. And we need to see if we're going to be a church that more and more embraces this idea of restore. Two convictions. A conviction is something that sits deeply inside of you, that you're convinced of, that you say that's absolutely true. And the first of those things is this, is, has to do with the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. We have an absolute conviction at River of Life that the power of restoration, the power of change, the power of freedom is from Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can save. And that inside of salvation is restoration. And he is the power that no person is so far removed, has sinned so much that God cannot restore their life and set them on a new course. And he can do that. He can do it in an instant. Sometimes he does it in over a long period of time of submission and growth in him. But he has the power And he can do that for you, and he can do that for anybody you know. He can do it for anybody in the Grand Valley that you can think of. Like the hardest person, they can never become a believer. Jesus' power is greater. He can do it. No issues beyond Jesus Christ. Think of my friend. His story, in the beginning of his story, you would think he could never come to Christ. No one ever thought that would happen in his life. God can restore the world. He can make it right. Do you believe that with conviction? How often I meet Christians, and sometimes including myself, that would hear that statement and go, yeah, I nod to that. God has the power. But we live as if it's not true. God has the power. And I'm convinced of it because I've seen it. And when I don't believe it, it's a lack of faith. You may need to ask God, give me faith. Pour that in me. Another theological conviction that I'm absolutely convinced of and I think is all throughout scripture, the motive of Jesus is what? Why did he heal this young man? It says it right there in in verse 13. Say it out loud. Compassion. I wasn't going to go on until you said it, all right? All right. Compassion. Jesus did it because of compassion. The heart of God, the attribute of God, who he is, is compassion. In the heart of Jesus, he had compassion, he had mercy. Some translations call it pity for 
this man and this woman. There's no stronger word in the Greek language for sympathy that is used again and again than this word compassion. In the gut of Jesus, it's trying to say, he had compassion when he saw situations. This is one of numerous times it describes Jesus as looking at people and seeing them with compassion. That's how he looks at the person next to you and you. Isn't that a wonderful truth about God? He looks at you with compassion. One of my favorites is Matthew 9. Same thing is shown here. Jesus had been going town to town. He was preaching. He was healing the sick. He was teaching uh, in these different settings. And he says, it says about him, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He looked at them and he had compassion. And he's with his disciples in this moment. And he turned to them and he said something else. He said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In other words, do you have a heart of compassion along with me in this? Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. People who would go with that heart of compassion to the people around them. You would think a God who came to this earth would set up a throne. Maybe he'd pick Jerusalem, set up a throne there and say, all of you pay homage to me, come worship me, come serve me. But what did our Savior do? He came to serve and not be served. The heart of compassion is part of what drives that. It's why he loved us and came in that way. And so to be restored starts with coming to the right place. Think of a a teenage rebellious child who's gone away and he comes back home to his family that loves him. His relationship is restored. He's brought back into that relationship with God. Restoration begins with a good relationship with Jesus. Turning to him. It's coming to that place that you need to be, and that's with Jesus. And it's also then the product of the right condition being brought back into things. Think of a classic car that somebody's lovingly restoring and bringing back to life, making it new again, becomes restored. God does that kind of work, freedom from things. Bondage that's held a community one by one in people's lives begins to be released. God is a God of restoration. Praise him for that. He's a God of restoration. He brings restoration to us. It's who he is. And guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus, restoration's in your story somewhere. Restoration is in your story somewhere. He restores lives. So what could I hold on to? Well, there's some powerful statements that we would need to make that would be part of the conviction, but it would say this is the practical outworking. Two things that we need to believe. One of them is this, that God can restore me. He can restore you. He can restore the things that are wrong in your life and he can make them right. The addictions, the fear, the hurt you've accumulated from people or family or churches Habitual sins that you just continue to wallow in and you seem like you can't get out. Anger. Your coping mechanisms. Your suffering that you've gone through. Your depression. Your marriage. Your family. Your enemies. That the hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might say, I just feel like I'm bobbing along in my walk with God. I'm barely surviving or I don't even know Jesus and I'm just bobbing along in life. It doesn't take much to plunk me under. God loves to restore And he wants to restore you. 
Jesus had a reputation for restoring people's lives. He did it for other people and he can do it for you. I know some of you are sitting there and you're skeptical. You're like, "Mm, I see what you're saying. I see it in scripture, but I'm not seeing it in my life. I've been praying, but seeking God, or I gave up on praying and seeking God a long time ago because it didn't happen. When I get in that situation, there's a question I have to ask myself. The question is this, whose terms? Most of the time, my terms have to do with a time frame, have to do with the question how he's going to do it, because I know better than God. And what he's going to do in that situation, how he's going to bring it out. And I'm mostly looking outside of myself. I think most of the time God wants us to start by saying, what about you? Can I restore your life by restoring you and changing you on the inside? If you tenderly will come towards him and work with him, and he may be calling you towards obedience, he may be calling you towards submission or letting go of something. As you do that, so often breakthroughs begin to happen, but you can't do it with the motive of God. I'll do this if you'll fix it. You have to do it just out of, okay, God, I'm going to let go. Ultimately, we aren't going to see everything fixed in this life either. But we will see it if you're a follower of Jesus Christ on the other side of death in eternity. God restores ultimately everything. So do you trust God? Do you trust him more than you trust yourself when it comes to restoration? that he knows better, that his ways are higher than your ways, that his thoughts are higher than yours, that he will do it the way he wants to, when he wants to, and what's best. Do you trust his goodness in that? Another statement to believe would be this, that God can restore our neighbors, even your worst one. He can restore our neighbors. And I mean by neighbors, our town, our area, our city here, our valley, the western slope. He can do a restorative work to do great things. Maybe we shouldn't just say he can. He wants to. He wants to through the application of the gospel into people's lives. And Christ uses his church to do that. And his church is you and I. His church is us as people, men and women who join him in what he's already doing and what he wants to do. I mean, imagine if God used ROL to just a greater degree in this. I mean, what kind of ministries would emerge? What kind of freedom from bondage types ministries would emerge? Helping people get free from porn, helping people get free from addictions, helping people uh, break free from hurts in the past, seeing counseling services possibly, biblical counseling services, seeing financial training, the biblical financial training applied, education, uh, families being helped. Things change when the gospel is applied. It's not simply us saying as leaders going, yep, we'll do this. This is us as a church. Do we embrace this? God, how could you use us? How could you use me individually? You know, when I look at the issues of where we live, I love this place. I even love the issues we have. And I don't want to sit on the sidelines and just say, there they are. There's the problems. I want to be in the game. I want to be a part of what God's doing and be a part of those things. It takes nitty gritty down in the dirt ministry to do this though. Some of you do it all the time. You live there. But the challenge to us is God, would you put your heart of compassion in us that we would get in the trenches, 
that we do the long haul ministry kind of stuff that it takes one-to-one discipleship, getting involved in things that help people move forward. You don't have to be perfect to do this kind of stuff. It's saying, I'm going to invest in you for a long time. I'm going to let you into my life. I'm going to show you how I follow Jesus. Remember, Jesus said he didn't come to the healthy. It's not they who need a doctor, but it's the sick, right? He said, I've come to call the right, not the righteous, but the sick. Man, if River of Life embraced this more and more and more, the diversity of this crowd would change. Wouldn't it be awesome? I mean, we'd be worshiping next to just a variety of different people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of spiritual maturities. And it's there. It's already kind of here. But what if God just kept putting this heart in us? What an awesome thing it would be at River of Life if that continued to well up this heart of compassion. All we have to do is join him. He does the hard work. All the hard lifting is on his end. And I think God's been preparing us and getting us ready for this more and more over these last couple of years. But we have to keep looking to him for restoration every day. Because if your life is not, your spiritual life is not continuing to be maintained, it's going to go down. It's going to crumble. Because that's the way things work in this world. And one of the best places we can minister to each other from is a place of, all right, I'm struggling through this, but I'm seeking God on it. I need, my, I need to come back to him for restoration. I need Jesus in my life. And as we come to the communion table, as we're here this morning, we are in the best place we could be. Because this is the place where God works and he helps us come back to the God of restoration, Jesus Christ. The one who's going to help us seek him. So many Sundays I come, and especially if we have a communion Sunday, and I just feel so inadequate to come before God to interact with him, to consider his death and his sacrifice with you. Because I think of all my failures and I think of all the things that are in my life that aren't fully restored at this point. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit says to us, do you see these things? Repent of them and come to me. Condemnation comes from the accuser of the saints who would say, see those things? You better not get near him. And you run away. This table is a table where conviction is a part of our life. But it's a good, sweet place to be. There were these two guys that are friends. And one of them worked at a car dealership. And his friend came in to see him at the car dealership. And he was talking about how he struggles with this. When he goes to church, he just feels always awkward. And, and like he's, he just thinks of all the failures in his life. And so the guy who worked at the car dealership said, Well, what do you call this part of the dealership? And his friend said, you mean the showroom right here? And he said, yep. And what's behind the showroom and behind that parts counter? And he said, oh, well, the service counters. I mean, sorry, the service department's back there. And so the friend who worked there said, well, what if I told you I didn't want to bring my car to the service department because it's running rough? We'd all know what he would say. That's dumb. You've got to keep fixing a car. You have to keep doing what it needs in order to be running smoothly. And the friend at the car dealership said, you're exactly right. Now let's go back to our initial conversation, he said. Instead of thinking of church as a showroom where images everything, start thinking of it as God's service department. Helping people get back in running order with God is what the church is all about. This communion table isn't about coming perfect. <laughs> Just coming to the source that forgives. It's about fixing our eyes on Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus came for, to restore us, to bring life to us. Jesus 
began communion as a something that shouldn't be a rote thing that we do week after week or month after month, but has life and meaning because we do it together. And we fix our eyes on Jesus together. In the upper room, when they had given thanks, it says that he broke it, Jesus broke the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We come to this table declaring we need restoration on a daily basis. God, keep us in the right place. Keep us in the right uh, condition with you. And so as you come this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to this table. When you're ready, spend a few minutes with God confessing, just being with him and considering what he might be saying to you. And then come and you take of these elements. And as you do, consider the body that was broken for you and the blood that was shed for you that you might have life. Jesus came to bring life to us and life abundantly. There's a gluten-free option at this table. There's two in the front and one in the back. Just come when you're ready.